From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Chief National Correspondent Steve Herman. Welcome Cindy and Steve. Well, here are the issues. Niger has been hit with unprecedented sanctions after its military leaders rejected the latest diplomatic efforts by a joint delegation from West African states, the AU, and the United Nations. A U.S. State Department spokesman said the United States still has hope for reversing Niger's coup, but was realistic about it. Niger is the world's seventh largest producer of uranium, the most widely used fuel for nuclear energy. It also extracts 20 20,000 barrels per day of oil, mostly from Chinese-run projects, and is on the threshold of a major surge in production via a new export pipeline to Benin. The U.S. Embassy in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, closed until further notice due to rapid gunfire nearby. Violent protest and gang activity have taken over the capital in recent months, which prompted the U.S. to encourage non-essential personnel to leave the country last month, citing threats of kidnappers. An American woman and her daughter have been released and are safe 13 days after they were kidnapped in Port-au-Prince. An explosion on the grounds of a factory north of Moscow wounded 45 people, six of them severely. The explosion has added to Russian jitters over nighttime drone attacks in Moscow. The incidents have occurred against the backdrop of Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive, which Ukrainian and Western officials have warned will be a long and hard progression against the Kremlin's deeply entrenched forces. In the U.S., President Biden visited the southwest where extreme heat has been threatening the region. His trip comes ahead of the one-year anniversary of the climate and health care bill known as the Inflation Reduction Act. The Biden administration also sees the trip as an opportunity for the president to make local headlines ahead of the 2024 election. All eyes are on Georgia, where yet another indictment of former President Donald Trump is expected. A Fulton County district attorney has been probing Trump's efforts to interfere in the state's closely fought 2020 election for more than a year and is widely expected this month to bring the fourth indictment of the year against the former president. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, in the latest on Niger, the country has been hit by unprecedented sanctions, and border and airspace closures have cut off supplies of medicine and food and hampering U.N. humanitarian aid. The U.S. and Western interests in Niger, a former ally of the U.S., are also under threat. So what is the U.S. saying about the precarious situation in Niger, Cindy? Officials are increasingly concerned, and they have been reluctant to use the word coup because that brings with it under U.S. law a whole bunch of specific actions that it would trigger to halt training in the country and halt millions of dollars of aid. And the U.S. does have more than 1,000 troops in Niger. And uh, this week, you had the acting Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland, visit Niger, and she wanted to meet with President Bazoum, who is basically being held. And that meeting was blocked, as well as a meeting with the coup leader, 
And so she said that afterwards that the conversations were quite difficult, which in diplomatic speak uh, means, you know, really quite harrowing. And the worst thing, apparently, is that the military leaders, including General Chiani, who now say they are in charge, are refusing to guarantee the safety of President Bazoum, especially, they say, if there is some kind of foreign military intervention. What's happened there really has ramifications far beyond the borders. This is a country that uh, really was considered to be closely allied with Washington and Paris uh, in a restive area in a fight against uh, rising Islamic insurgencies. And what really was an internal political squabble is now something with significant geopolitical ramifications. You know, I don't like to make an analogy to the domino theory, which was used and abused in the early Cold War era. But uh, you have to wonder with what has happened in Mali and Burkina Faso, which have also now come more under the sway of Moscow than Washington, whether what is happening in Niger is really crossing the Rubicon here. You've got that West African group, ECOWAS, which had threatened to intervene militarily and does not appear that it's going to be taking any actions. It's also failed to thwart coups in some other countries as well. So we're at a very uh, important moment here. We ignore Africa all too often, but what happens there is uh, really significant for the rest of the world. And this is a perfect example. Exactly. That's a really good point, Steve. And also, you mentioned ECOWAS. Nigeria's president, Bola Tinubu, who was head of ECOWAS, said that they are not ruling out military intervention. How would this change the dynamics then if that should occur? Well, it looks like a paper tiger, that uh, this is really a sort of empty threat, and it would have to be ECOWAS that went in there. You're not going to see the French presumably invade or the United States, which, you know, has boots on the ground because uh, we were operating out of there helping Niger with uh, counterinsurgency operations, but they're not going to march in the capital try to uh, overthrow these generals that have taken power. Right. And that's one thing to touch on that point, Steve, that the U.S. I'm hearing is trying to use the fact that it does have troops in Niger and that it is giving military aid to the country as a bargaining chip with these military leaders because they don't want to lose that money. So if the U.S. has any leverage at all, it might be this military aid as well as 400 million in humanitarian aid that goes to the people of Niger who really needed it before this. And the State Department also pointed out that this week that it was a bit perhaps suspicious that these you know pro military leaders these pro you know deposing president bazoum uh, people who turned out in stadiums were waving russian flags and then you had matthew miller at the state department saying is that the first thing you do in this situation is go out and purchase your russian flags so asking where the people got those russian flags Yes, that's a very interesting point, and we're going to have to move on to our next topic. And in Haiti, the U.S. Embassy in Port-au-Prince remains closed until further notice due to rapid gunfire nearby. And the U.S. encouraged non-personnel to leave the country last month, citing the threat of kidnapping. Cindy, I know you've been covering this story. What is the latest you have coming out of Haiti? 
Right. Well, have gotten some good news this week that, as you mentioned, Kim, that an American nurse and her daughter uh, have been released. This is a woman who was working and uh, giving medical treatment to people in Haiti. She was actually, you know, abducted at gunpoint right in front of a patient 13 days ago. And you saw school children coming out to protest and to say, please, you know, let her go, please let her free. But just wanted to point out that this is really an epidemic of violent kidnappings and beatings and rapes in Haiti, and that the majority of victims are Haitians. You know, it tends to get more attention when these are Americans or foreigners. But uh, women and children are just being targeted by these violent gangs, especially since the assassination of the president two years ago. Things have just gotten worse. This is uh, really a country where if you talk to people there, they uh, would welcome some sort of uh, foreign intervention, even a military force. The statistics are really sobering, Kim. The UN Refugee Agency says uh, more than 73,000 people fled the country last year because of the growing gang violence and poverty. And the UN says about half of the country's population, that's something like 5 million people, need humanitarian assistance. And without this, you're not going to restore stability to this country. Yeah, that's a good point, bringing in the international community. So what is the U.S. saying about this? Right. Well, the U.S., because of its history in Haiti, has been reluctant to take the lead and sending sort of, you know, getting any kind of international force or multilateral force to come in. And there was a push to get Canada to take the lead and then Bahamas and Jamaica. And no one has wanted to. And now Kenya has stepped up to say that it would send a thousand police officers and the UN needs to authorize this. And there's a deadline of August 15th for this to happen. And the State Department says the next step would be for Kenya to send kind of an assessment mission to Haiti to see how it could do this. And some experts are pointing out, well, this is difficult because mainly, you know, Kenya is an English speaking country and Haiti, you need French or Creole. And so, as Steve said, I think at this point, residents are just begging for some kind of security and some kind of aid, and they would welcome any kind of help from the outside. As you all brought out, this gang violence, it just has been going on for so long and it just keeps getting worse and worse. So there needs to be some type of intervention to stop this. Well, explosions and drone attacks in Moscow are adding to the fears of civilians in Russia. So, Steve, are these attacks part of Ukraine's counteroffensive? Well, who else could it really be, right? The Ukrainians take credit for it indirectly, and these attacks are increasing in number and obviously something that uh, the Ukrainians have decided to do in response to the attacks on uh, civilian targets that are occurring on a regular basis in Kiev and other cities in Ukraine. Also, this counteroffensive, which Ukrainian and Western officials warn that it's going to be long and hard. So will the U.S. be able to sustain Ukraine through this? 
Well, I'm sure if you talk to Cindy and what they're saying at the uh, State Department and Defense Department, they're very optimistic. But we have to look at the reality of politics in this country. We have a presidential election coming up. You may have a candidate who gets the nomination from the Republican Party who takes a more skeptical stance of uh, all this uh, money being poured into Ukraine. And, and especially if the war goes on another year and it's still a, a stalemate, uh, not only politicians, presidential candidates and those on Capitol Hill raising questions, but perhaps also people in the media and uh, among the general public. So the clock is ticking. Ukraine is under pressure. You know, Kim, as a student of history and you read sort of a contemporary accounts of what people said early in wars and our soldiers are going to be home by Christmas and that sort of stuff. And these uh, fights tend to go on not months, but years. Yeah, I would agree with what Steve said. I mean, the State Department and the Defense Department, they are saying, you know, our support for Ukraine is rock solid and we are here to support Kyiv as long as it takes. But I think, you know, in Congress, there are some rumblings. And as Steve said, we have an election coming up. And so I think that the U.S. is very eager to see some progress. And as you mentioned, Kim, Ukraine is trying to put Russia a bit on the defensive with these drone attacks targeting Moscow almost daily and also with attacks on Russian ports in the Black Sea. So we have to watch closely and see if there is some progress, because otherwise, on the southern front, it is a grueling process. It's going to be a long, hard war. And Ukraine admits that Russian defenses are very, very hard to penetrate. Yeah, most military analysts will tell you, maybe not on the record, if um, they're working uh, for a major institution or uh, consulting for the Defense Department, but on background off the record, they will say that, you know, they expect that this is going to end up in a stalemate and there's going to have to be a diplomatic solution where both sides give in something which is not very palatable to either Moscow or Kiev. But if Ukraine is to win this war, it's going to come through unconventional means and creative means. And Ukraine is getting a lot of support from NATO, obviously, and the Defense Department, intelligence and advice and things like that. But of course, the United States and NATO cannot put boots on the ground in Ukraine to fight this war because that effectively would be the start of World War Three. Yes, that is really true. And hopefully we will see some type of diplomatic intervention to stop all this, because even looking at the humanitarian aspect of this with innocent people, civilians losing their lives, and then the destruction of these grain ports that is affecting people's food supply. The longer this goes on, the more impact it has on South Asia and Africa because of the effect on the food supply. So this is a war that really already is beginning to affect the entire world. Yes. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, a look at stories topping U.S. politics. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Chief National Correspondent Steve Herman. 
President Biden visited the southwest region of the U.S. where extreme heat has been threatening the region. The president said in an interview there that he was already in practice declaring a national climate emergency, though he has not actually announced such a declaration. So what was the president referring to in saying that this climate emergency plan is already in action? Well, the government is taking action, spending money, not only to improve infrastructure, but to try to build up resiliency. And, you know, Kim, we're kind of watching this play out in real time almost in Texas every single day, almost uh, they're breaking records on electrical consumption because of record heat. We have now a very tragic wildfire in all places, Maui in Hawaii, which has killed several dozen people. I mean, it's just an almost an unprecedented uh, tragedy in decades for those islands. Hurricane force winds exacerbating those fires. They don't really know what started the fire. But again, most people will tell you that we're just seeing more extreme weather, and this is due to climate change and uh, no matter how many billions of dollars you spend, it in some ways is going to be a losing effort, but we can be more resilient, we can mitigate. This is definitely a centerpiece for Joe Biden and his reelection campaign. And he wants to show by being on the ground in places like New Mexico, Utah, Arizona, that he is responsive in probably between now and the election in November 2024. Unfortunately, we'll probably see the president going to more and more uh, disaster sites to be there to console the people who are being affected by what most people would consider is a result of a changing climate. And a Utah man suspected of threatening President Biden was shot and killed by the FBI as they were serving a warrant on him. What more do you have on this? This man, Craig Robertson, had made very explicit threats on social media against the president, the vice president, some of the people that are prosecuting former President uh, Donald Trump. He had uh, talked about a sniper rifle uh, ahead of President Biden visiting Utah. He was confronted by the FBI. They were going to serve a warrant on his house, and there was an exchange of gunfire, and he was killed. And the FBI is saying that this was not, you know, just somebody sort of fantasizing on their keyboard, that this man had the capabilities to carry out his threats. It's just a reminder of the very divisive atmosphere in this country And FBI Director Christopher Wray has also said that there's been an unprecedented level of threats against FBI agents. And this uh, man in Utah is one of the latest examples of people who are making those sort of threats. You know, we have the former president, Trump, taking to his social media to rail against prosecutors and district attorneys and others. Unfortunately, there are some of his supporters out there, and this man was a Trump supporter, apparently, who take that seriously and are prepared to take action on it, which makes it incredibly dangerous. Yes. And also in speaking of former President Donald Trump, there is another indictment that could be imminent for him. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has been probing Trump's efforts to interfere in the state's closely fought 2020 election for more than a year. And she's widely expected to bring forth an indictment against the president. So how will another indictment affect Trump's 2024 election campaign for president? 
I think what we're going to see is the former president spending as much time as courtrooms as he is out on the campaign trail. And uh, there's such a traffic jam of cases building up against Donald Trump that we're probably going to see these cases stretch uh, far beyond the November 2024 election. So we are entering into really uncharted territory in American history. Donald Trump is the leader in the polls among all the Republican candidates. So it is more than likely that he would get the nomination and be in a rematch against Joe Biden and uh, try to become the first president since Grover Cleveland in the late 19th century to serve non-consecutive terms. The difference being that Grover Cleveland did not come back into office facing dozens of federal felony counts, and it's possible that Donald Trump, by November of 2024, could be convicted of some felony counts. And so then this really raises some amazing, for lack of a better word, constitutional questions. Uh, does Trump, if he were to win, if he were to defeat the Democratic nominee, presumably Joe Biden, would he be able to pardon himself? There's not much to go on on that. There was a, a Justice Department opinion during the Richard Nixon era where it's thought that this could happen with Nixon during the Watergate scandal. He might stay in office and be in a position to pardon himself. The Justice Department, in a very terse note uh, back then, said that the president does not have kingly powers, so to speak, to pardon himself. But this is obviously going to get tested, and many of these cases and questions are going to go all the way to the Supreme Court, which is obviously controlled by conservative judges, some of whom Donald Trump appointed. So, do they recuse themselves or do they uh, act if something comes before them uh, with Donald Trump's name on it? Again, we are really potentially facing some things we've never seen in American history. Yes, that's right, Steve. And I think in the coming week, all eyes will be on Atlanta. And one of the things is that if former President Trump is charged on racketeering charges uh, related to trying to get the people in the state to reverse the results of, of the election and trying to, you know, basically say that Biden did not win the state and that Trump did, then if Trump were to be convicted there, that would right. be a federal charge, and that would be something where he could not pardon himself. Exactly, yes. Be almost the biggest uh, legal jeopardy for the president. And what is interesting is that we don't know what's going to happen you know, next week, but we are hearing that there could be as many as 12 indictments, or at least that that is what she is seeking, and that this could really also, for the first time, involve some very, perhaps some very prominent allies of the president, who we know that South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham was on the phone with officials in Georgia. We know that authorities have some of these conversations. So a lot of people are watching and sort of wondering and trying to read the tea leaves to figure out who also may be caught up in this. All the signals are there, as Kim pointed out, that uh, we are going to see indictments returned with the president's name on it and the names of others in Georgia very soon. Yes, we will just continue to follow this and see what's going to occur really within perhaps the next few days. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. Cindy, what is weighing on your mind this week? 
I wanted to give a shout out to those amazing professional women athletes at the World Cup. I've been trying to watch that, which has been difficult a little bit with the uh, time difference. But of course, the U.S. team was eliminated. The U.S. team uh, has won the World Cup four times. And, you know, that was also the subject of controversy. Steve mentioned that we do have a very divisive atmosphere in this country. But, you know, that, that's sports. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And I um, just on my you know, personal opinion, would like to congratulate the U.S. team and all the others, the quarterfinals, which are still coming up, uh, including Colombia, which was not expected to come this far. And just congratulations to those tremendous athletes and what they're doing to inspire girls to play. Very good. Thank you. And Steve? Well, as the chief national correspondent, politics is uh, the sport uh, that I follow. So Milwaukee is on my mind. August 23rd, we're going to have the first Republican presidential primary debate in that city in Wisconsin. We have more than a dozen candidates who are vying to be on that stage. And one who seems to be having trouble making up his mind is Donald Trump, the front runner, who says it's probably not in his best interest to be there. But whether Donald Trump or not is on that stage in Milwaukee, he will be the primary topic of conversation, no doubt, at least as to uh, what the other candidates are asked about and what ends up in the news clips we see on TV and hear on the radio. Thank you. And we'll end the show on those thoughts. My thanks go to our panelists, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Chief National Correspondent Steve Herman. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to join us next weekend for more Issues in the News. 